Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith is just that. It's concise and it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount because In the Market with Janet Partial is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's Truth Rule, just call 877-JANET-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can go online to InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Give a gift of any amount. We'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month, and they'll also get a newsletter, only people that do, that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of I Believe, 877-JANET-58 is the route to go, 877-JANET-58, or online at InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. I Believe, a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your Pilgrim's Progress. Now, please enjoy the podcast. Hi, friends. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Partial. It's Heart to Heart Friday, where Craig and I share some of the stories making headlines this week, and then we'll offer our insight and analysis. If you'd like to join in the conversation on what we're talking about, please call 877-548-3675. That's 877-548-3675. Now let's take a quick look back at some of the other topics we discussed this week. God's given us lots of evidence for the New Testament and for the the, the entire Bible, in fact. And he's not asking us to trust um, with no ground for belief. Um, So even when God tested Abraham, you know, to offer it up for his son son Isaac, that was after he had seen God perform the amazing miracle of giving him Isaac. So I do think Mm. that the, the place of evidence is very significant. And I also think that trust is a word we can speak to non-Christians about because they all exercise it. I mean, if you don't trust, you die. I mean, what, what are you going to eat? Someone can poison it. If you don't, if you don't look, look at the labels and believe that, you know, there isn't poison in there, how could we buy anything to, to eat? At the same time frame, the White House came in in 2023 with its own executive order saying that equity, not equality, equity a value that the White House has promoted needs to be infused in all artificial intelligence. Now, equity has been defined by some political leaders as not equality, but something distinct from it, meaning that you determine equal outcomes, even if it means depriving some groups or some people or depriving certain civil liberties. We want to start the year with a focus on prayer. We want to really 
say, this is where we want our hearts and our minds to be focused on Jesus. So we are doing a fasting and prayer time. People in entertainment industry through the Hollywood Prayer Network. We started January 1st. People can fast one day a week. They can fast every day. They can fast food. They can fast media. They can fast anything that distracts them from spending more time with God. And lifting up this 21 days, not only to get our own hearts right with God, but to really say we want to see a change in arts and entertainment and media and journalism and video games and music. And so we're going to take these first 21 days and lay a strong foundation for the year. Not only do terminally ill people, but chronically ill people, disabled people, frail elderly people, mentally ill people, children, infants with born with serious disabilities and so forth. That's in the Netherlands under the uh, Groningen Protocol. So the idea uh, eventually ends up where Germany is, where the uh, highest court in Germany uh, issued a ruling a couple of years ago that says there's a fundamental constitutional right to commit suicide for any reason and for any purpose. You don't have to have a health issue and to be assisted in suicide. And there's an ancillary constitutional right to assist in suicide. Death on demand is the ultimate goal here. When they pretend otherwise, it's to get people to swallow the hemlock. But that's where we're at. Even well-known agnostic um, uh, people who are no no friends to biblical Christianity, like um, uh, Bart Ehrman, for instance, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. have 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 published books basically um, against this whole movement called Jesus mysticism. So, in a sense, um, that was an easy chapter to write because the historical evidence for Jesus is very strong, and uh, and as you say, um, there's more evidence for the the crucifixion of Jesus than there is for the crossing of the Rubicon by Caesar. Yet, no historian ever doubts such an event like that, and. And so you have to um, accept that, unfortunately, in the age we live, um, fake news is alive and well. And one of those (laughs) fake, fake news items is this idea that Jesus didn't exist. It's Heart to Heart Friday. Here are some of the other stories making headlines this week. As Iranian mourners gathered near the site of two deadly explosions on Thursday, Islamic State claimed responsibility for the blasts. Egypt is preparing to spend billions doubling the size of its lavish new capital. Police said a sixth grade student was killed and five others were wounded Thursday after a 17-year-old gunman opened fire inside an Iowa high school. North Korea fired more than 200 artillery rounds near a disputed maritime border with South Korea on Friday. It's Heart to Heart Friday on In the Market with Janet Parshall. Craig and I have lots to share, and we'll put the first story on the table when we return. To join the conversation on the topics we're discussing, call 877-548-3675. That's The truths of the Christian faith are powerfully clear and wonderfully deep, but sometimes we don't fully understand what we believe. That's why I've chosen I Believe, a concise guide to the essentials of the Christian faith as this month's truth tool. Know the foundations of faith and reinvigorate your walk with Jesus. Ask for your copy of I Believe when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Happy Friday to you, friends. I am particularly excited about this month's Truth Tool, I Believe. It really is a great way to start 2024, knowing what you believe and why you believe it. So I Believe is merely a concise guide to the essentials of the Christian faith. How in the world can we contend 
if we don't know what it is we believe, nor do we know why we believe it. And so the basics of the Christian faith, user-friendly, easy read, one of those fabulous resource books you're going to want to have on your desk and pass on down to your children as you're building your legacy library. So it's yours for a gift of any amount, one eight seven seven janet 57 janet 58 or online at in the market with janet partial.org in the market with janet partial.org while you're there consider becoming a partial partner as well those are people who give every month you set your own level of giving you're always going to get the truth tool but in addition to that you're going to get a newsletter as well so in the market with janet partial.org scroll to the bottom of the page or 877 janet 58 and ask for a copy of i believe. Craig Parshall is with me as he's wont to do on Fridays. We take a look at some of the stories making headlines, but we do it different from the Alphabet Soup Media. We do it by looking at the world through the lens of Scripture. And we always talk at some point in our two hours on Friday, we end up talking about artificial intelligence. So there's a very weird story. Again, you think this is science fiction theater, but it's not. And we're not talking the future, we're talking the present. So apparently a bunch of officials got together, top defense department scientists, and they had a gathering at their inter-service industry training simulation and education conference that they had in Florida uh, toward the end of November last year. And among the topics discussed at the conference were, and I kid you not, breeding programs, Marvel movies. <laughs> These are top Defense Department scientists. Marvel movies, The Matrix, and various technologies the Pentagon is researching with the goal of creating a live super soldier complete with cybernetic implants and thorny ethical issues surrounding body autonomy. What could possibly go wrong? So apparently who uh, one analyst for the Defense Acquisition University said, so we have a wide range of panelists here to cover the kind of breadth that might involve a super soldier. Now, when we hear super soldier, what do we think? We think Marvel, right? Captain America, Iron Man. So several enhancements for soldiers were discussed at the conference, including giving soldiers synthetic blood, replacing night vision goggles with eye drops, ooh, and giving a soldier of the future pain-numbing stimulants and the ability to regrow limbs and quickly heal wounds like a lizard. Enhanced soldiers would be reduced to bionic men who run, didn't, wasn't there a TV show about this, who run fast, do not need to sleep, eat and drink very little and can fight all the time. <laughs> a new species is born Homo robocopus, one slide apparently said. And so when asked about equipping retired veterans with this this new technology, one research science suggested that it would give retired vets a sense of purpose and help to reduce depression rates by turning them in apparently to a super soldier. If we can use people regardless of their physical capabilities or we can enhance their capabilities, why can't we increase the longevity of service? We've actually been working with a company called Teledyne to look at technologies that are able to write to the brain at a very high resolution. And he's working on something called non-invasive brain simulation. Very early, very early in its development. So there's still a lot to do, but there's something that will be coming in the future to be able to wear a device that non-invasively can write information directly on your brain without any surgery, without any sensation on your skin, said this analyst. 
And so they talked about creating these super soldiers, but they also brought up some of the ethical and legal challenges that might ensue as a result. So what risk are we willing to take? Well, we don't want a fair fight. We really don't. This is not an honorable thing. We want our guys to be overmatching any possible enemies, right? So why aren't we giving them pharmaceutical enhancements? Oh, wow. Why are we making them run all week when we could just be giving them steroids? There are these other things you could do if you can change societal norms and ethics and laws in some cases. We could find ourselves in a situation where our soldiers as talented and trained as they are are facing an unfair fight because another country is willing to say, hey, guess what? You male, a good aviator. You female, a good aviator. You're going to make the best aviator babies we've ever seen. So now this is the breeding program. You're going to make the best aviator babies, but I want to play the piano, Dad. You're going to be the best aviator babies <laughs> we've ever seen, and I don't care that you're not married. Oh, okay, no ethical problems there. That's a thing. Are they willing to go that extra step that we are not? Oh, oh boy. Like I said, this would be interesting if it was under the category of science fiction, but this is a group of top Pentagon scientists Captain America, Iron Man, breeding super warriors, hop them up on dope. What could possibly go wrong? Your thoughts, Captain Partial. <laughs> um, gosh, where do I start? <laughs> Look, they, they even hinted at some of the problems. They said, hmm, so what do you do when their recruitment or their, their enlistment period is over? With this super soldier, hmm. I mean, do you do you de-enhance that soldier? You terminate so them, so, so he's no longer, or she is no longer a threat to civilized society. Um, actually, you know, I read this story, and I had, I had two responses. There were two proposals. One was the major one that was the headline here, and that is building using um, really esoteric technology to create. Marvel movie-like super soldiers of the type that you described. That was one very disturbing picture that I, I got from this article. But the other disturbing picture was a comment in the same article that less dramatic suggestions for swelling the numbers of our military uh, services was suggested by uh, Congressman Dick Durbin, and that is using illegal aliens to come in and enlist them into the military service. Between those two ideas, high technology of the Marvel movie kind and having illegal aliens come in and supposedly put in uniforms to fight for the defense of our constitutional liberties, you talk about two terribly flawed ideas. I don't know which one is worse. So and we are at a quandary, Janet, from having a beginning point, first principles of making decisions about how we run our country and how we protect uh, our citizenry, and basic principles have been abandoned. And we are now simply talking about, yes, I agree, if you're called to war, if you have no alternative but warfare, if it's the last resort, then you want to be able to win the war. But at what but cost? But at what cost? And at what price to the values you've now skewered and set on fire? Um, I, there were there were there were things that could have been done in World War II that we did not do. I know there's a lot of controversy about the two bombs that were dropped on Japan and the firebombing uh, in uh, Bresden over in Germany. But by and large, we were following 
the the well-known international standards of warfare, um, of uh, proportionality and protecting, um, you know, civilian areas. By and large, there were exceptions, clearly. But we winning at all cost is not where you use the starting point. The first principles need to be a recognition that there are a, base, a basis morally, and I believe spiritually, uh, for followers of Christ, uh, but certainly uh, in terms of well-known concepts of, of uh, uh, governance and morality, for a just war as opposed to an unjust war well, and just warfare as opposed to unjust I, I warfare. I was thinking the same thing. That's where you, you need to start there, not end up there. No, but I was also thinking about the idea of human exceptionalism and utilitarianism and the d- disposability of our fellow man. So you hop them up on dope, you breed, you get them to breed super right. soldiers. Right. I mean, all of that is a kind of situational ethics. Any means whatsoever is justifiable as long as you get to your desired end, which is I want to kill the bad guys. So I'm going to breed a super warrior at any cost. So we're going to violate the idea of marriage. We're going to violate the idea of the dignity of fellow man, of Imago Dei, of seeing the image of God in your fellow man. So you're not going to hop him up on dope or make him wear a magic helmet so we can imprint his brain while he's on the battlefield. If you want first principles, first of all, if you're a follower of Christ, the first principles are found within the cover of your Bible. Uh, even if you're not a follower of Christ, the first principles of governance in this country, you can look to the preamble to the Constitution. And the words common defense were built in the preamble. That is, that government has a moral and, and governance duty to protect its citizens from for, foreign attack. That is a duty that the founders took, took seriously. But look at the belief system, the worldview they had when they drafted that Constitution that had those words. Mm. We're going to take up another topic. This is In the Market with Janet Parshall right after this. So we're going to continue with technology a bit and linger in the world of artificial intelligence and talk to you about ADA, spelled A-I-D-A. This machine is the world's first ultra-realistic robot artist, did you know there was such a thing? And this machine did an interview with a UK journalist. Uh, and it was interesting because they had this back and forth about art. And uh, the interviewer was very put off by the fact that it took the machine a while to kind of process the response before the response was given. And her answers about art were very nuanced. Um, and in fact, at one point, the journalist says, do you think that your paintings are as good? Are they as artful as a drawing by humans? And so she blinks, uh, and focuses on the journalist and the journalist turns to the cameraman and says, I think she's going to kill me. So he obviously was uncomfortable with the way in which this was taking place, but he decided to move beyond this idea of art criticism and went to a more important question as this machine is processing its response. And he asked Ada if there was anything that, quote, we should be scared of. So after a beat, the reply comes, and I'm quoting the machine. I am not a risk, but some of the technologies I represent have the potential to be a risk. I'm not using my robot voice. I think that concerns over the future development and use of AI are valid. She attempts to elaborate on the point, but the interviewer then interrupts with a pressing question and says, what do you think we should be most concerned about? So Ada apparently... Uh, is aware that the machine is a machine. Notice I am 
overtly avoiding the use of pronouns. I think we further delusion, we further the delusion when we use gender specific pronouns. It's a machine. It doesn't get a pronoun. Uh, and so apparently the machine is aware that the machine is a robot and, uh, this uses uh, information to help the machine inform her art. So she's the, the machine says when creating, I slipped, I get penalized. When creating my art, I use a variety of AI algorithms, noting that it enjoys creating art that encourages discussions over new technology. It goes on to say AI impacts will be considerable, complex and multifaceted. It is impossible to escape the fact that Ada, the robot artist, is deeply aware of the knowledge and implications and that it is an AI and that its work Im- works impact are complex and multifaceted. And therefore, the journalist was rather put off by having the machine say to the man, note there is a profound distinction between man and machine, yes, some of our technology might be problematic. Hell, what do you, <laughs> so, you know, why are we surprised by any of this? First of all, do we need robots to make art where man is not creative? God didn't make his people creative that we need machines. To, we're too lazy to pick up a paintbrush now. So we have to have a robot do it. You look at these interviews like this one by a journalist and the articles about them and the journalist who, or, or the author who wrote the description of this journalist's creepy interview with this AI um, system that you know portrays itself as a woman uh, with a woman's voice and so forth um, kept saying it was so clear that this AI figure was self-aware. No, and and more than once. And I I kept asking myself, okay, I wish I had the author of that article talking about the interview between the journalist and the AI uh, system, because I was going to say, upon what evidence did you base your conclusion in your article that this AI system that created this artificial female face on a screen and had a artificial human voice was self-aware and the answer would have to be because of what she said and i'd have to correct her him and the author of the article and say no no it's it's not a him it's an it so it sounded human and it made some words come out now let me let me postulate something janet you and i have seen some really funny comedy acts with a ventriloquist and a dummy there's a reason they call them dummies right? Because there's a guy behind the dummy. And the key is not to move your lips. And then you engage in this little fantasy that this kind of odd looking sarcastic thing on his lap that's making funny, you know, statements about his his ventriloquist. The mature sock puppet. Right. The mature Mm -hmm. sock. You know, it becomes very funny because you know darn well that 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 little object made out of wood and, and cloth isn't real. But pretend that the dummy has a computer system built into the dummy and the ventriloquist walks away and the dummy is sitting there on the stool saying, ladies and gentlemen, I'm AI dummy. I'll answer your questions. Now you'd say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's different. Well, why is it different? Well, because the ventriloquist is moving the arms and the mouth and saying the things. And I'll respond to that and say, well, someone who 
took this system and gave it machine learning over a long period of time to use words and then create false voices and key into certain questions with certain predictable answers was the ventriloquist. He's just not sitting on the stool. He's back in a laboratory in some tech company in the Silicon Valley, and he did all of this digitally and then set this in motion. But the dummy is still a dummy, and it's not a he, and it's not a her. Well, I rest, Your Honor, I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> no further questions, Your Honor. Um, again, I, I just I think we're slowly. It, it's the proverbial frog in the hot pot. The water's being turned up slowly to the point where whether we think we've come to peace with this uh, new technology. It's going to be foisted on. It's being foisted on. And we are starting to accept it. Even, And I'm not being, I I think there's a very pointed reason why I refuse, this is a value choice on my part, Mm -hmm. to use a gender-specific pronoun to a bunch of diodes and a motherboard. It's not a human being. It is not made in the image of God. And when you give it a gender-specific pronoun, you're already buying into this. Buyer beware. Back after this. Christians are called to go into the marketplace of ideas. Throughout history, men and women of God have been thought leaders, innovators, and forces for good. We want this program to continue in that bold tradition. Join me by becoming a partial partner. Your monthly gift will make a difference as we help Christians take a bold stand in the marketplace of ideas. Call today, 877-JANET-58, or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. So we're going to shift to another topic now. And Mr. Craig Parshall recently sent out a tweet where he had something to say about an opinion piece that showed up recently in the Washington Post bearing the title, Why We Split the World into Good and Evil and Make Decisions We Regret. Now, the piece was written by a woman by the name of Amanda Ripley, who's a New York Times bestselling author and an investigative journalist for The Atlantic, Politico, The Washington Post, and other outlets. She worked with Time Magazine for a long period of time. She's written multiple books, including High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out of It. And then she has an LLC uh, called High Conflict as well, where uh, it helps groups deal with moving from high conflict down to good conflict. But it was the idea, Craig, I'm going to guess, knowing you pretty well, that this uh, discussion about splitting the world into good and evil, in fact, at the very end of her piece, she makes the declarative statement, uh, beware black and white thinking and rest your tired eyes on the gray. That's where all the action is. Now, that's that's important stuff for followers of Christ who believe in the inerrant, transcendent, immutable word of God and how we apply it to the world around us. And then we have an opinion piece that shows up in the Washington Post. You're a busy guy. There's a gazillion things on your plate every single day. Why did you choose to tweet out about this? I thought it was so important for a number of reasons. First of all, I read the Washington Post because I have to, not because I want to. (laughs) I really do want to see what they and a number of other publications have to say on a regular basis, Um, not because I find solace and comfort but I really want to use it as a metric, as you do, for some of the ideas out there that are unsustainable. If you, if you really want to sit down and analyze them calmly and apply principles of decency and common sense, and particularly for followers of Christ, they're unsustainable. But they're very inviting to the ear of a lot in, out, out there in society. And the reason they are is because they're comforting. You see, she 
accuses, and let me give an overview, and then we could talk about specifics. I, I think she, from an overview standpoint of this uh, approach that she used, at the end, she says, Embra- embrace the complexity of things you can't understand, like the gray areas, basically. And I think you astutely pointed out, she said, don't pick the black and white, pick the gray. The gray represents the things you don't know for sure. And if you emphasize on that, you'll end up not worrying about or even believing in the fact that there are whites and blacks, there are goods and bads, there is right and there is wrong, there is good and there is evil. Now, not everything smacks of good and evil. We can, for instance, you and I have talked about uh, how heated politics get in Washington, D.C. But when you're having budget discussions, for instance. One could bang on the podium in the well of the Senate or the House of Representatives and say, you know, by not fending our military, uh, you're going to destroy this nation and you're going to lead to chaos and anarchy and so forth. Um, But basically, dollars and cents, any economic issues don't have to be incendiary. In fact, a lot of issues don't have to be. There's a lot of common ground. And you and I have been around this city of Washington, D.C. long enough to know mm-hmm. that there's very often common ground on on a lot of issues that the press treats as uh, these divisive, black and white, uh, uh, good and evil discussions, and they want to say, let's just reside in the middle. Well, the middle of that they're suggesting is the uncertainty of right and wrong, that there really is an inability to say this is absolutely right and this is absolutely wrong, so let's all enjoy the gray where we really don't know and ultimately don't care that there might be a difference between right and wrong. So the implication there is that absolutes are abhorrent, that we'll all minimize conflict if we simply... Why hurt your brain? Why create chaos in society and heated debates during political seasons? Let's just agree that we, we don't know a lot of things and let's live in the gray But somebody has to make decisions. In governance, someone has to make a decision about whether a war is justified, whether the economy is being ruined or helped, whether people are being assisted or hurt, whether crime is being stopped or actually enhanced. People have to make decisions based on that. In our own life, you and I and the listeners of this radio show have to make decisions about raising our children, about paying our taxes, about telling the truth and working for the good of our community or simply being selfish and saying, I'm going to get what I want and I don't care if the community is hurt as a result of that. We have decisions that we have to make too. So what first principles do we begin with to make those decisions? Well, some of us, you and I and followers of Christ say, the first principles are in the word of God. If we're a follower of Jesus, it is encompassed, first of all, in his word. First and foremost, so as you read his word, you know that there are commandments, not suggestions. Because their murder is wrong, um, that a thievery is wrong, uh, that truth telling is important, and it's it, it, tr- telling the truth is a moral uh, uh, imperative for followers of Christ. So the, the scripture is is compl- replete from beginning to end with things that are right and things that are wrong, and evil is characterized as being clearly evil. In fact, there is a spiritual reality behind evil, and the origination of evil 
the origin story is made very clear in Genesis, and it's ex- explained throughout the Old Testament, and the prophets talk about it, and the patriarchs talk about it, and then Christ himself, as he walked the earth and preached in all four Gospels, goes back to reaffirm the authenticity of the Old Testament picture of good and evil and the origination of evil and who our real enemy is, and the enemy isn't the ACLU or a certain political party uh, or even Hamas, as barbarous as they are. Certain actions are evil, but the origination of evil comes from a spiritual answer. That is a spiritual question that has a spiritual answer. Genesis has the answer. Scripture has the answer, but it's deemed to be arcane now. It's deemed to be something uh, that uh, should go out with the, the dinosaurs and the medievals. And we really ought to be modern enough, and that's what the sense of this article is, to be able to embrace what we do not, do not know, but have to presume that things are really not black and white. Things are really not good versus evil. And I would suggest this, that she's denying the reality of evil because it's more comfortable to say, no, I don't see it that way. Or, I don't see that division. I, I think another thing that I was impressed with was the idea that the goal and, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. I think it's wonderful that she wants to minimize conflict and move it in her verbiage from high conflict down to good conflict. But at what cost? So, in other words, if you um, think it's better to get along better than to be right, and I'm putting this in very simplistic terms, then uh, the former is better than the latter. That give move away from the absolute in order for there to be good conflict where you can have points of disagreement, but mitigate the reality of good and evil for the sake of minimized conflict. Is that compromise? Well, let me use two. Now let's get down to specifics. Um, it's, it, I think it's highly significant that the two episodes that she talks about, that she anchors her argument. It doesn't comprise the whole argument that she makes, but it, it really is the, the anchor two instances She criticizes President Bush for using the word evil to talk about those that slaughtered innocent people in 9-11. The terrorist who's slain thousands of innocent people in an abhorrent campaign against America. She criticized President Bush's use of the word evil. The second characteristic that she used in the second episode. Wait, before we go to the second, yes. can I linger for a moment? Because this is relevant because we talked to Wesley Smith yesterday about Peter Singer, who's this Australian ethicist who's embraced by Ivy League colleges, um, who is a strong proponent of infanticide and has written, written uh, father, the father of the animal liberation movement and has written in support of bestiality. Not quite sure how that works with animal liberation, but I digress. Um, and talks about the fact that he wrote a book called The President of Good and Evil, and this was talking about President Bush and his use of the word good and evil. So, A, her politics are showing. B, I question her sight. So she uses Peter Singer, this nefarious, one of the most dangerous, but sadly influential thinkers of the 21st century, and she uses him as a reference. Uh, you know, you got to be careful who you call as your expert witness right. into a trial. Now, if if President Bush was the only political figure that she went after, you might say, well, that's a one-off. No, then she went against Ted Cruz, a member of the same political party mm-hmm. as President Bush, and criticized him. Criticized him for what? Well, because Ted Cruz got in the well of the Senate and he said that the October 7th attack by Hamas slaughtering women and children and men in their homes, torturing them and killing them, uh, unprovoked, by the way, 
um, entering their homes to accomplish this and slaying teenagers out in the desert who were attending a dance or a, a music festival. Um, when he called it uh, barbarism versus civilization, how else can you characterize the acts of October 7th by Hamas, another terrorist organization? So in other words, she went against two Republican figures who were criticizing the lack of morality of two terrorist groups who went out and without provocation slaughtered innocent human beings. Now, that's about as clear a picture of right and wrong in my book as there is. Well, so let me go back to that. Let me take the two examples. Let's talk about 9-11 and Hamas. We were in D.C. We know what happened on September 9th, uh, uh, September 11th when that happened. When a plane becomes a missile and plows into a building, and by the time the dust settles, over 3,000 American lives have been taken, unprovoked. If there is evil in the world, that was the incarnation. And planned, well-planned, orchestrated, funded for the purpose of destroying human life, innocent human life, in three different episodes, one failed and ended up in a field due to the bravery of Americans. Let me take a break and come back and let's continue to this examine about moving away from good and evil, right and wrong, to the grays. So we're talking about an article that showed up in the Washington Post as an opinion piece written by Amanda Ripley called Why We Split the World into Good and Evil and Make Decisions We Regret. And again, her thesis primarily is the idea that we should inhale or embrace the complexity uh, inhale the complexity. I want to get her words right. Beware black and white thinking and rest your tired eyes on the gray. Um, Craig, you have the word of God open on your lap and your thumbing as you always do. And so the question then becomes, um, I, I, blessed are the peacemakers. I'm all for reducing conflict as much as we possibly can. But there are some times when you have to say this far and no farther. And and moral absolutes, we talked about this last hour when we talked about the new book called um, uh, the book of the Church of Heavenly Kiss, right? This is for people who are uh, not interested in going to church. So basically it's the exaltation of man and just keep it simple, stupid, and you don't have to believe in God, believe in yourself and move from the Ten Commandments to the Ten Commitments. And as we said last hour, Ted Koppel didn't call them the Ten Suggestions. I would say that those Ten are moral absolutes. So is there a place for the believer to say, I'm sorry, this is a non-negotiable position. You can't be a little bit pro-life any more than you can be a little bit pregnant. Uh, you can't be a little bit in favor of the traditional marriage um, and then somehow think that other alternatives are perfectly acceptable. There are some absolute lines in the sand. And I don't think there's a rigidity or a blindness or a failure to um, desire to be at peace with all men, as Paul said, when you believe in absolutes. It's knowing how to articulate them, how your behavior reflects your belief in those absolutes. And it's not, I, I cannot stand simplistic thinking in Christianity. Why is so much postured as an either or rather than a both and? I can, I've met with all kinds of groups in Washington who have a 180 degree worldview different from me. I've debated them. I've been on panels with them. But the idea is where you're willing to compromise, you can in fact, I told you Bill Bennett taught me early on when I came to Washington, you look at somebody who holds an opposing worldview and say, you're not an 80% enemy, you're a 20% friend. You learn how to negotiate your relationships with people without abandoning your principles. This article makes it look like you have to abandon your principles for the sake of mitigating conflict. Well, it's it's interesting because if 
that were her real motivation than her goal in writing the article, uh, that is peacemaking, then why does she pick one political party right. to lambast and impliedly also support the opposite political party on the Israeli issue? Right. Now, she inadvertently did make a comment that I thought was really interesting. And she said, last month, and then she moved to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which, you know, was, uh, uh, she, she jumped off of the Ted Cruz comment about the evil nature of the Hamas attack of October 7th. Which, by the way, pales which, in comparison to what Netanyahu said. Right. Um, she said last month, now, this was uh, an article that came out today. So we're talking about December 2023. So it was two months into the war over there in Israel with Hamas. Last month, 70% of Arab citizens in Israel. Now, let me point out for the listeners who, who haven't traveled to Israel and don't realize that there are a number of Arab citizens who live and work uh, within the nation of Israel, and there are members of, uh, there are Arab citizens who represent their constituency the Knesset. in the Knesset, mm -hmm. which is their legislative Congress. Yep. 70% of Arab citizens in December of 2023 said they felt part, they felt that they were part of Israel. Several months before that, in June of 2023, only 48% of Arabs polled in Israel said they really felt comfortable saying that they felt part of Israel. Now, after the attack by Hamas, I think the Arab citizens who lived, and you and I have met a number of them, good people on both sides, um, who, who are both Palestinian and those who are Jewish, um, and the, the Arab citizens in Israel basically said, look, we are making a choice to say we align with Israel, and what had happened, what had been orchestrated by Hamas, a terror group, was indescribably evil, has no basis, uh, had no justification, and should be opposed in some reasonable way. The question isn't good versus evil. She makes it sound as if we have to choose the fact that you can't answer these questions, so live in the gray area between mm -hmm. with uncertainty. But they can be answered. And the majority of people, th those Arabs, I believe, were saying that Hamas is evil and they perpetrated evil. The same with 9-11. There's no question that the vast majority, almost 90 to 100% of Americans, said what had happened on 9-11, unprovoked, was the epitome of evil. The real debate is, what do we do about it? And then it becomes a political issue, and we can debate those things. Should we have, uh, uh, should we have um, uh, gone to Afghanistan, invaded, to kick out um, uh, the uh, al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan, should we have then moved into Iraq? Those are geopolitical and political questions that we can have reasonable debates about. But we don't start by denying the reality of evil. We simply say the, the question on the table is not the question of evil or whether something should be done to stop it. Remember that both Peter and Paul, Paul in Romans and uh, Peter in his uh, epistle, both say that the role of government is to restrain evildoers right, and right. punish them and to promote good. So if that's the role of government, then evil versus good is very much of the Christian worldview and the purpose of governance. 
But it appears that there are those, like the author of this article, who don't like that paradigm. They want you to live in, in the, the gray areas. I go back to Colossians. Colossians says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. So you have a choice, ladies and gentlemen. You begin with first principles of the Word of God, the, the metric of good and evil, or you say, we, we throw our hands up and we're going to live in the obscurity of the gray areas of not knowing. If you really want to know, read the Word and then apply it. Yeah, well, one of the reasons Moody called it the straight stick of truth. What's the antithesis of truth? Falsehood. So apparently... There are differences out there, and there are differences we shouldn't be ashamed of. Now, how we engage the culture, that's a whole other conversation. How we do it always through a grace narrative. We do it in a winsome way, remembering that one of the monikers we bear is ambassador for Christ, but never, ever be ashamed or retreat from that which we know to be right, good, and true. One of the great things about opinion pieces is it gives us a chance to offer our opinions, and we just did. Hope you have a great weekend, friend. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time on In the Market with Janet Parker.